Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We bear all of the risk for a foreign company um, to just move their move their product through, and, and it's ridiculous. we got to shut it down. Gretchen Whitmer, the uh, governor of the state of Michigan, and uh, in response, the premier of Alberta, 20 hours ago, Jason Kenney tweeted, calling on Michigan, Michigan governor at Gov Whitmer to stop her destructive campaign to shut down a major pipeline that's the largest source of energy for her state, the upper U.S. Midwest, and for central Canada. That's at J. Kenny. Well, the premier of Alberta joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network to address this issue. Premier Kenny, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Roy. And uh, have you been in direct communication with the governor of Michigan, or are you restricted to attempts on Twitter? Well, it's funny you should ask. I actually went down to Michigan in the fall of 2019 uh, to uh, lobby her and members of uh, the Michigan governor and uh, government and state house on this issue. And she refused to meet with me at the time. Um, I tried later to meet with her at the margins of the national governors association meeting in January of 2020. Again, she refused to meet with me and, not, and I represent the government that uh, the, the province that is the single largest source of energy for her economy. Um, we then tried to set up a phone call and she finally agreed to speak to me by phone uh, last fall but only on the condition that I not raise <laughs> line five. So I had to find some artfully diplomatic way of instead talking generically about energy security and so forth. And she seemed completely uninterested. I mean, I, I can't, um, Michigan, it, Michigan's economy is totally integrated with Canada's, as you know. And the, the, the way she's been treating our country with such disrespect is unbelievable. Uh, violating a bilateral treaty which guarantees the security of transshipment of pipelines between our jurisdictions um, and and threatening her own economy it, it, it is it's unbelievable I've never seen uh, I think this is the wor- one of the worst examples of irresponsible leadership that I've seen so what uh, response are you getting from other sources within the state of Michigan and the United States do you have a sense of what uh, President Biden's interest or, or or what his commitment where his commitment well lies? our impression is the Biden administration's been trying to um, play hot potato with this uh, J- Jennifer Granholm who is uh, the energy secretary former governor of Michigan has just uh, it keeps saying that this is up to the courts. Uh, they won't speak to it. Um, I, I think they, they don't want to upset some of the uh, hard green left in, in their political base is the only inference I can draw from that. Um, but uh, they are apparently willing to risk freezing much of the American economy if this doesn't go forward. I mean, excuse me, if, if an executive order actually is implemented and we shut down, they shut down 640,000 barrels a day of crude oil shipments from Canada, uh, airplanes won't be able to take off out of the Detroit airport. Uh, homes won't be heated in the winter in the upper Michigan Peninsula. The enormous refineries in northern Ohio will go dry. Uh, trucks and cars won't be able to operate in, in much of the upper Midwest. So this, is a, this, is, this should be taken very seriously by everyone in the U.S. I can tell you this, though, Roy, that um, the majority of pe- folks with whom we have dealt with in Michigan are very supportive of, of the continued safe operation of the pipeline of Enbridge's plan to bury the pipeline under the lake bed. 
um, the majority of both the Michigan State Assembly and State Senate. The, uh, almost all of the major unions in that very union-heavy state support the project. Um, and, of course, the business community does. I, I did meet with Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio in 2019 about this. He expressed his strong support, as have the governors of Indiana, uh, Illinois, and uh, and other surrounding states. So I read a couple of reports from uh, Michigan, and uh, they may be influenced by environmental groups, uh, Premier, but they suggested that the state of Michigan would do just fine without Line 5. There would be just a minor inconvenience and probably not much of a fiscal impact. I don't know how that could be the case, but but that's certainly a couple of the stories that I read. So let me throw that at you first. And then part B of this, if a federal court hands the decision to a Michigan court concerning closure of Line 5, what are the expectations of the decision by the state court? Does that then, then allow the governor to go ahead and, and shut things down? Well, her order has no effect unless, effect, to put it in simple terms, unless it's ratified by, by court. court. Now, right now, there, there's a jurisdictional fight about whether that decision belongs in a federal or a state court. Um, we do appreciate that the government of Canada finally has intervened um, and by submitting a brief uh, in cooperation with with Canadian provinces, ourselves, Ontario, Quebec, and Saskatchewan. Um, and um, we'll, uh, this is going to take quite some time, I think, before the U.S. courts. But the legal analysis I've seen suggests that there is very little chance of the governor's order being upheld. Um, this looks like a lot of political stunting going on. Mm-hmm. And in terms of your earlier question about, uh, I mean, I should say this, Roy. Having said that, we have to take it seriously. Like, like there's always a chance that this could go in, in a, a terribly wrong direction. And let's, you know what, if the governor of Michigan wants to uh, shoot her own economy in, her, in, the, in the foot, that's her business, I guess. But let's be concerned about our friends in Ontario and Quebec. Half of the fuel um, consumed in those provinces comes off of this line. And, I mean, it would shut down the refineries in Sarnia. It would shut down, uh, it, it would require thousands of trucks to, to, to carry fuel uh, instead of this pipeline on the highways of Ontario, it would create logistical chaos, massively spike gas prices. Uh, it would uh, heavily hit Pearson Airport and their ability to fuel the yeah. planes with aviation fuel, etc. So it's not. It, it, it is a very serious threat to the Canadian economy. Do you feel like you have the enthusiastic support of the Prime Minister of Canada and the federal Liberal government? Or do you feel that you have um, lukewarm support on this one? Well, look, the government has filed a legal brief, and we appreciate that. And certainly Minister O'Regan, the energy minister, has had strong words about this. Um, We would like to see a stronger push with the U.S. federal government and the president on this. you know, the, the, President Biden, we, we respect the fact that he was elected, wish him well, but uh, the very first day, uh, he slapped Canada in the face with the retroactive veto of the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and now he is, uh, he and his administration are completely ignoring this direct full frontal attack on the most important aspect of the Canada-U.S. economic relationship, which is our energy exports, that is not that is not indicative of a good friend or neighbor. And I think 
the, the Trudeau government needs to make that point in no uncertain terms. Yeah, you need the prime minister to pick up the phone and call the president and not say what he said after the Keystone Pipeline announcement, which was essentially, well, we'll go along with what our friends in Washington decide. We can't do that. Um, Correct. Premier, doesn't this also speak to the incomplete pipeline infrastructure issue in this country in a major way? Yeah. I mean, if Energy East had gone ahead, we would have had a belt and suspenders approach to national energy security. Uh, We would have had another uh, major uh, piece of infrastructure carrying and that. No, admittedly, you would have been using through Ontario, Central Canada, a lot of existing pipeline capacity. But it would have certainly increased our energy independence against this kind of disruption. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's why it's so disappointing that, that the, the prime minister has effectively given one provincial government, Quebec, a veto over a critical piece of national infrastructure. And that the Trudeau government effectively killed TransCanada Pipeline's proposed uh, Energy East project back in 2017 by imposing ridiculous new regulatory mandates with respect to up and downstream emissions that they could never really calculate or uh, or meet. So uh, I, this does underscore that it's ridiculous. You know, there's actually um, Canadian oil that gets shipped down through the current Keystone Pipeline to refineries in Texas. It's then loaded on um, uh, tankers and sometimes brought up to the port of St. John and into Montreal to fuel the central Canadian economy. This is ridiculous. We should we should have those pipelines. Yeah, we should. Uh, quick word from your premier on the situation on the ground in Alberta with COVID. Well, uh, th- thankfully, uh, we, we are starting to see our, our numbers come down. Our active case numbers have been, have been coming down for most of the past week. Um, and our and our new daily case numbers, people are, are rising to the challenge of this third spike, and the vaccines are we're seeing the impact. Yesterday we hit our record high, sixty five thousand doses administered. Uh, we're now at fifty percent of adult population with at least one dose. I want to thank Albertans for for um, their fantastic response to the vaccine program. That's our ticket out of this. And yesterday, uh, the Calgary Stampede announced they will be proceeding. Uh, with a scaled-down stampede this year, that is great news, and I, I, so I truly believe that we can be set up for a great Alberta summer. Fifteen active police officers and four retired officers are challenging in court. They're being forced to participate in the enforcement of, quote, unconstitutional and, quote, martial law-like, and quote, lockdowns and stay-at-home orders of Canadian citizens in the province of Ontario. Toronto Police Service Sergeant Julie Evans is one of the 15 active officers who's described what she's being forced to do in a column by my friend Joel Warmington of the Toronto Sun as, quote, outright violations of people's rights, end quote, and uh, she's also said it's criminalizing human behavior of people who are not criminals. York Regional Police Constable Chris Vandenvoss is quoted as saying, people, quote, are going out and living their lives. To me, they should not involve police going out and criminalizing that, end quote. The officer's lawyer, Rocco Galati of Toronto, has said they have serious concerns that they're being asked to do something completely illegal and unconstitutional. Sergeant Evans, Constable Vandenvoss, and Mr. Galati join me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Thanks, everybody, for coming on. Thanks for having us. Um, let me start with you, Sergeant Evans. So what, what is your concern uh, as a police officer? And maybe you can speak for, for everyone. I'll ask uh, Chris Van Boss the same question, though. What is your concern with the decisions taken by the Ford government and delivered as emergency measures to slow the spread of COVID-19? 
Which ones do you are you most concerned about? Well, first to start off, uh, formerly sergeant uh, with Toronto Police Service, uh, I have since uh, left my position, um, so that uh, that's a new development for me. So uh, I'm no longer active with the Toronto Police Service. But to uh, answer your question. I think a big part of it is uh, procedural justice and the perception of police legitimacy. So uh, typically when we, we engage in policing activities or law enforcement, we, we do that on consent of the public. So that's a, a huge factor in sort of the cooperation uh, and the, uh, the perception that what we're doing is lawful, what we're doing is right, uh, that we're following the rule of law and that there's a component of procedural justice. Uh, since those measures were enacted by the uh, Ford government, we've certainly seen police services uh, stuck in a rock and a hard place between uh, enforcing the measures, the provincial measures, but then breaching the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So uh, for me, that's been sort of the difficulty that we've sort of walked this tightrope for a long time. Uh, and it's not on consent of the people. It's not with cooperation, not with public feedback or public support. Uh, for what we're doing so we're actually creating uh, a massive divide between police and community which is the exact opposite of what we attempt to do in policing practices is there a leaving the toronto police service because of these developments uh, she, she didn't leave uh, roy she was constructively dismissed as a result of hostile threatening and toxic work environment which she could no longer uh, 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 tolerate and she shouldn't tolerate. So she's been constructively dismissed and will be suing the Toronto Police Services as a result. Okay. Um, Chris Vandenboss, same question to you. What's what's your concern? You're a 20-year police officer, York Region, or York Police in, uh, in the Toronto, Greater Toronto area. What's your concern about the decisions? Do they mirror those of uh, former Sergeant Evans? Yes, they do. Uh, and just for a point of clarification, it's actually 16 plus years, almost 17. Um, but I thank you for advancing my years on the on the service. But uh, no, I, I definitely do agree with Sergeant Evans. And, and my concern is that the oath that we took is to the Constitution, the Charter of the Queen, and every law that we've enforced as police throughout our entire careers. If there is any issue in result uh, as a result of the charter in the application of our duties we would see the courts withdraw said charges because they, there was a charter violation so this is a major facet of our job that we have to adhere to and now we're being asked to disregard that charter and for me i have a big issue with that because it's that oath that i took the most pride in taking and uh, applying it in the application of my duties uh, Ms. Evans, uh, how controversial is uh, your decision and how controversial was the decision by the province among the ranks of, of police services? I, maybe you can answer that, maybe you can't, but we do know that 20 police services refused to enforce Premier Ford's recent order that police should stop and question people who were out walking or driving and to demand why they weren't at home. 20 police services in the province of Ontario said, no, we're not doing this. So was this a controversial issue within, uh, you know, behind closed doors? Ms. Evans? She's, she's muted, Roy. I think the bigger question, um, you know, is, is why did the, the police chiefs come to that decision so quickly? And I think as time goes on, we'll learn more about that. Um, but while they, they came forward with a united front, uh, they certainly didn't hesitate to take the Premier's money uh, and put out what I what I coined the charter violation teams. So they have money uh, given to the police service on a daily basis shortly after that decision, 
where the police services came forward and said we won't engage in that unlawful okay. those charter violations. Okay. Uh, um, but then I'm sorry, I'm just looking at the clock here. I've got to feed you, fit everything into the time frame. Uh, Chris, what about uh, your fellow officers? Is is this a, a controversial issue that you that you have to try to manage your way around? Do, do officers do a majority of officers support or you or do they support the the the, the province? Is that a fair well, question? I'm glad, to you? I'm glad you asked that, Roy, because uh, there's nothing that speaks louder than when people actually speak out. And we developed a group called Police on Guard back in late December in the face of these issues. And we have had resounding support from officers all across Canada, as well as retired officers. And that number is growing and we're getting the message out there as it pertains to the charter issues. So I am very thankful for all the work the other officers with Police on Guard are doing behind the scenes for Canadians. And what are you hearing from folks on the street? Well, folks on the street are concerned. They're concerned because, you know, the, the sentiments that are echoed the most loudest is that people are more scared of their government than they are the virus, it seems. And uh, and that speaks to a disparity in the application of police resources, because when we're stomping on people's charter rights, people lose faith in the police. Mr. Galati, what's the, what's the legal argument for the courts? And by the way, I'm hearing, I see, I see emails from people, from listeners who both support uh, your clients and will also say, well, look, if they're not going to enforce the law, they shouldn't be police officers. What's the legal argument that you're going to put forward? Here. Well, there's very legal, various legal arguments. Uh, essentially, these are uh, martial law provisions that are not within the jurisdiction of the provincial government. They're over the top. They're overly broad. They violate the charter. They're not justified in a free and democratic society, and they're based on a they're based on a non-existent, uh, um, flawed measure of case counts and furthermore they're asking police officers to uh, forget their oath forget the constitution and you know at some point this government might it should have gone for a quick reference to the court of appeal to see if these measures are constitutional what is, what's your what, what's your experience tell you though when you go before a judge and right. you make the you know make the statements you just made to me i'm a broadcaster i hear martial law and uh, it takes me back to uh, to my youth in in Quebec uh, during the FLQ crisis. That was a whole right. different situation. But when you if you say martial law to a judge in the province of Ontario, what are you going to get back? Well, if the judge is awake, what do you call a stay-at-home order? That's a form of curfew. What do you call it, Roy? When well, you're ordered to stay at home, that's martial law. Yeah, they'll turn around and they'll say the, to you that they have the right under emergency provisions to make that kind of decision. Well, we say we say the prerequisites under the act for calling of an emergency are not there. They have the evidentiary burden to show that the emergency provision that uh, that that's prompted them to put in restrictive martial law provisions are not there. If what this are they, were a real national emergency... Rocco, like that, I'm, all, I'm looking at the clock. I'm just looking at the clock here. I want to ask you a question. What are the chances of this going to court? If you're looking at the clock, can I finish the answer? What are the chances you'll be able to get this to court? No, let me finish the answer, Roy. The answer is this. Only the federal government has jurisdiction over national emergencies. Why that hasn't crossed anybody's mind is beyond me. The federal government doesn't want to call a national emergency because they can't meet their requirements either. Okay, so then my question now again is, what are the chances you'll get this before a court? Well, the chances are very good. They already asked the court to dismiss it out of hand, and on May 5th, the court said no. What's the next date? The, 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 well, we'll be perfecting the application, and we, I, I'm going to ask for a date in early fall. 
Chris, does this uh, make you question staying, staying, staying a police officer, the situation? Well, that's been a big conflict. Absolutely. Um, it's very difficult to, to see the charter rights of my fellow Canadians being removed at the behest of the government and using the police to do so, because I take great pride in the profession that I chose to serve. And Julie, final word to you. Go ahead, Julie. Oh, sorry. Um, can you just repeat the question? Sorry. No, just I, final I, word to you. Just wrap it up for me in about 30 seconds. Well, again, I think it, it's, a, it's a matter of whether or not this is an emergency, whether or not the evidence shows that it's an emergency, whether or not the truth seekers out there want to have critical debates uh, and honest conversation. Uh, it's a matter of people's lives at stake, yes, but on many aspects and not just the COVID platform. So I think police, community, medical doctors, professions need to collaborate. It can't be a one-sided show. Absolutely not. Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper, who's reporting on money laundering by criminal gangs from China and uh, the challenging of British Columbia, has generated national headlines and international attention. And in my view, you've heard me say this many times, Sam to me is absolutely the standard for great investigative journalism. Sam's uh, book, his new book, Willful Blindness, which is going to be released on Thursday, has already generated a great deal of attention. And uh, we have a pre-publishing interview with Sam right now on the massive amount of money laundered through British Columbia casinos. And uh, Sam names the people involved and the investigators tasked with putting an end to this huge international organized crime activity. Sam Cooper, uh, willful blindness. I have to tell you, Sam, uh, this is an exceptional piece of investigative journalism I, I, I'm reading your book, and each day when I finish my day's reading, I go back and look at certain parts of it, certain sections of it, and I just know how hard you've worked. Congratulations. This is a masterpiece. <laughs> Roy, that's a super high praise. Um, I, I just want to say I, I'm glad that you're the first person to talk to me about this book because I believe uh, you've been there for some developments, some huge developments uh, in, on the BC casino money laundering story. And as I let your uh, listeners know uh, a few weeks ago, really what I did here was dig into the history so that this could, this could uh, tell how the Vancouver model took shape in Canada and how organized crime has really uh, gripped a hold on Vancouver. Really, it's Toronto too. Uh, you know, Roy, a lot of people understand how had New York City in its grip uh, decades ago. The FBI overcame that, uh, that really uh, economic scourge, but people don't quite understand, I believe, how the same thing is happening in Canada, but it's a different story, uh, yeah. transnational gains in Asia. So, so Sam, have grabbed control. Yeah, I explained the relationship between China's communist government and criminal organizations in China and the owners of casinos, casinos in Hong Kong and Macau and how that relationship transferred or came into play in British Columbia. So for the book, I knew that I had to uh, go to primary sources and there were some excellent sources. These were the investigators uh, from the RCMP, Canadian Immigration investigators that were stationed in Hong Kong in the 1990s. They have a story to tell. Really, this is the, the first run at, at history that, that I've revealed in this book because uh, the narrative is they say that 
large-scale corruption occurred in Canada's High Commission in Hong Kong. Uh, tycoons who owned the Macau casinos were very connected to triads. That's organized crime uh, based in China and Hong Kong that runs drug money around the world and through Macau casinos. The added layer there is that what these Canadian investigators were saying was that these triads and tycoons based in Hong Kong work for the Chinese Communist Party and with Chinese intelligence services. But it doesn't stop there. I know this is shocking for Canadians. What's alleged and revealed in the story, uh, a few chapters in my book, is that these investigators believe that a number of Canadian officials were corrupted by these tycoons, gangsters, and uh, agents of espionage for the Chinese Communist Party. How does it happen? It happens with free trips to the Macau casinos, uh, what's called the red packets. That is, you, you get a gift of a red packet with cash stuffed in it, and you go to the Hong Kong Jockey Club and gamble with these tycoons. They get very close and friendly with you. What are they trying to do? They are trying to uh, win immigration to Canada, even though they're known organized crime figures. And uh, the surprise here is some were very successful, and those people are very invested in Vancouver and Toronto real estate and have been for decades. So now in the book, uh, and, and you, may, you, you name names and you give numbers and, and you have direct quotes, and it's just, again, Willful Blindness is the name of the book. It is an amazing, amazing piece of work. Three years of Sam's life into researching this. So individuals you name, including uh, include Lee Lin Shaw and Kwok Chung Tam. Now, Mr. Tam was ordered deported from Canada, arrived as a refugee after, as you write, selling three factories in, uh, in China before he left for Canada. Um, so I don't know how you qualify as a refugee, but anyway. Uh, so he, he applies for refugee status. But he was ordered deported after a period of years, number of years, but he remained here years after his deportation order. What can you tell us about these two individuals? Well, to start with Kwok Chun Tam, uh, I had to look at his case to understand how this uh, gang that is very close to the Chinese Communist Party called the Big Circle Boys has become the dominant uh, dealer of heroin and fentanyl in North America. My book uh, quotes uh, Canadian investigators that say they are so powerful, they set the prices for heroin in North America. Kwok Chun Tam arrived in 1988. Yes, he claimed refugee status, but uh, as my book reveals, within days, uh, he, he was doing business, criminal business, allegedly. He, he had uh, homes, he had an auto shop, he had all kinds of uh, assets with no legitimate income. How did I come across him? There's a, a former Australian police officer named Ross Alderson, a main source for this book. I tell the story through the eyes of investigators. He let me know about Kwok Chun Tam back in uh, 2016 or 17 because he was following my reporting on uh, money laundering in Vancouver. He thought I needed to know about uh, how powerful this individual was and how for really decades, he, uh, investigators had been trying to bar him from casinos in Richmond. They could not. He continued to run a Macau-style junket operation. And yes, he was ordered deported, but for some reason, uh, the, the order was never fulfilled. So really, I, Chapter 3 is about understanding how an individual like this alleged transnational gang boss can remain in Canada and... Uh, 
what I found, uh, allegedly run drug labs. We know many people are dying in BC from heroin and fentanyl, yet how did Mr. Tam stay here? Uh, yeah. People will have to read the book because I get into a great amount of detail. You do, and and it is an amazingly detailed piece of work. Now, let's talk about this for a second before we take the to take a break here, Sam. Let's get into the money side of things. So the triads used illegal underground banks to transfer, do we know, roughly, is there a ballpark figure of on how much money they transferred into British Columbia? Because as, as you point out, at one point, they owned about one-sixth of Vancouver, did they not? Well, uh, that's right. Uh, we, it, it's hard to calculate how much. Let me put it this way. Uh, in the late 80s, some of these tycoons that were investigated by the Canadian officials I talk about, uh, they were uh, these officials tried to bar them from... Uh, in immigrating and investing investing in uh, Canada unsuccessfully. Part of the story is why did that happen? Is there corruption in Ottawa? Is there willful blindness that allowed these tycoons to to buy? Yes, about one sixth of Vancouver. There's some major land deals in the late '80s, and uh, I can tell you that what we see on the surface, one sixth, that's a number. But uh, I can tell you that the family members, the the offspring of, uh, of some of these, the richest men in Asia that are allegedly connected to heroin triads are very, are still investing. I, I know of cases I haven't reported yet. Let me try to give you a figure. Uh, look, uh, I report that in 2014, BC's gaming regulator estimated that $200 million per year in, drug, in suspected drug cash was being laundered through BC legal casinos. That is one year uh, there's illegal casinos too. Everyone that knows about this story knows that the casinos are the tip of the iceberg. The real estate is uh, the bigger portion of money laundering. As I say, a lot of this money that arrived in Canada, going back to the 1980s, that one-sixth of Vancouver that was bought, my contention, my argument is that money was already laundered in Hong Kong. So when it arrives in Canada, it may look clean, but it, uh, it stems from criminal proceeds. That's the argument uh, uh, my book puts forward. We're talking to Sam about the billions and billions of dollars that made their way by way of uh, Macau and Hong Kong and uh, the Chinese Communist government and criminal organizations in, in mainland China and Hong Kong to British Columbia through underground, illegal underground banks where they transferred the money. Uh, hockey bags filled with $20 bills. This is this is like movie stuff, uh, Sam, but it, it's it's real, isn't it? Hockey bags filled with $20 bills, which is the stock in trade for drug deals, were taken to BC casinos in exchange for casino chips laundering the money. So that makes, you, it makes it impossible, and you're right about this, it's impossible for Canadian organizations like banks, law firms, real estate agents, and provincial casino regulators not to be aware. It's impossible for them not to be aware, and uh, it's it's only most apparent in the casinos because yes, indeed, uh, there were hockey bags, there were uh, suitcases with uh, you know up to a million dollars per night. Uh, I write about in a in a portion of the book that you haven't gotten to yet. Uh, stunning transactions, and absolutely within view of casino security. Uh, why were the police not there? That's uh, another portion of the book that you're going to have to get to, Roy, and I believe perhaps one of the most explosive portions, but uh, the banks, uh, of course, the banks to some extent uh, are involved, and the book shows that. Uh, Bank drafts, when 
late in the game when 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 people are forced to step up and take a little bit of a second look at those duffel bags stuffed with 500 to a million dollars in cash uh bank drafts are used by these same transnational gangs to feed into the casinos and and some people might say if you have a bank draft why the heck would you would you go and take it to the casino because you already have your money laundered it's in the bank yeah. but what i found roy is Let's think about this. Who owns the casinos? Is there someone, you know, secretly owning a portion of the casino? Were they allowed to own a portion of the casino by regulators in BC? That is something my book will look at. And if you think about it, uh, loan sharks, narco traffickers, gangsters running cash into the casino. Could it be that uh, gangsters are also taking cash out on the other side? It's just that there's so much money flowing through, and that, that's the argument to the book. Uh, willful blindness is a slam dunk. What does that mean in legal terms? It means that people that should know and should act do know this is dirty money. They, they in fact, welcome criminal proceeds. My book prov- provides documents that, uh, that makes that case. And I know that there's some people uh, in the casinos that that uh, will have their lawyers uh, scouring through the book and 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 trying to make arguments, but this is all documented, right? Well, uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to be the person who challenges you on this because just reading what I've read so far, and we'll have part two of our interview next Saturday. We're doing this live today. We'll do it live again next Saturday. But we'll, I'll be further into the book. I'm just absorbing everything that you've written, Sam, and it is incredible. Tell us a bit about the good guys, like Ross Alderson and Calvin Krusty. They, they, they were trying to kick out out of British Columbia casinos, individuals who never should have been allowed to enter, and they got pushback on that. That's right. There's a long history, again, going back to Hong Kong, of some very excellent investigators and uh, Canadian intelligence. Look, Canadian intelligence and law enforcement are some of the smartest people in the world, but for some reason... Uh, our legal system just isn't allowing them to make cases. So you're right, people like Ross Alderson, Fred Pinnock, Calvin Krusty, these are some of the people uh, I can name because their names have come out in public now. There, there are other investigators that were sources that I can't name. Um, some, you know, some, some amazing people, let's just say uh, people that know because they come from Hong Kong and they know the culture, uh, Canadian investigators that are you know, just such experts on uh, how crime works in China and trying to fight it within uh, Canadian communities that are being taken advantage of by, uh, again, the Chinese Communist Party. So my sources are, are broad and wide. They come from every section of Canadian society. And you're right. In the book, I, I think the people that came to me came to me because they tried to make a difference. And just for institutional reasons... I'm going to come out and say it, revenue generation, uh, they were not allowed to block this dirty money. And that's really, you know, that's the core of the story. When, yeah. when you see such, when it's so apparent that dirty money com- is coming in and good investigators are trying to block it, yet they have their careers ruined, what does that suggest? It suggests there's corruption higher above them that, uh, that is uh, really stamping down on the good guys and girls in these uh, agencies and just letting this crime take hold in Canada. Sam, we have about a minute left uh, today, and then again we'll, t- we'll talk again next Saturday about willful blindness. But share with us something uh, about Canadian soldiers who came back from the Wuhan Games, which may well shock people. 
that's a scoop in the latter portion of the book where I, I deal with what happened during the pandemic, uh, what happened with PPE disappearing from Canada so quickly, who was behind it? Well, uh, I'll, I'll just give it away. It was some of the people involved in casino money laundering. Now over to Wuhan, yes, there is more of a story there. I talked to uh, soldiers that were over in Wuhan in October 2019 and experienced extremely strange activity. Let's just say uh, a, very, uh, a city of about 10 million seems strangely empty. What does Canadian intelligence and Canadian military intelligence believe about what happened in Wuhan? I can tell you that some soldiers came home very sick and uh, they don't believe that the government acted on intelligence the way they should. So that, that's a big story, I believe, Roy. And uh, when people read the book, there's going to be some documentation that they'll be surprised by. Yeah, that's a big, big, big story. And in the seconds we have left, these people, these, these, these gangsters, these mobsters, these criminals, they made Pablo Escobar seem like a pauper by comparison, yes? That's yes, correct. Yeah. And uh, my, the, the book ends okay. with the afterward chapter where I demonstrate that the, the largest okay. transnational cartel yeah. in the world yeah. is so active in BC and okay. Toronto that people would be shocked. The issue of the uh, ethics committee in Parliament, boy, it's been a big one for over a year. And uh, we can argue, I think, I think fairly persuasively that the prorogation of Parliament, which was called by the Prime Minister, had a lot to do with what the Ethics Committee was finding out. Charlie Angus, NDP, is also a member, of course, member of Parliament and a member of the Parliamentary Ethics Committee. And we've talked to Mr. Angus repeatedly about the goings-on within that committee. And then this week we heard that the Commissioner, the Ethics Commissioner and the Commissioner of the Conflict of Interest Act, has declared that... Uh, uh, Morneau, Bill Morneau, the former finance minister, was in violation of uh, ethics regulations, but the prime minister wasn't, which Democracy Watch and Duff Conacher really strongly disagree with, with Mr. Conacher telling us last hour that Democracy Watch is going to court to challenge Mr. Dion's ruling on Trudeau. All right. All of that aside, Mr. Angus joins us. Charlie, thanks very much for, uh, for joining us. And what's your response to the ethics commissioner's decisions? Well, thanks so much for having me again, Roy. Um, I think... People should really read the decisions. Um, I was wondering what would come down on the Trudeau report because certainly the the need to establish a breach of conflict of interest, particularly when we're dealing with the boss, uh, the prime minister, would have to be a pretty high bar. And everything was pretty much set on the table for the prime minister to sign off because I think he created the culture that made this happen. So technically, he may have gotten off according to the act. But I would say, Roy, I encourage everyone to download a copy of the Morneau Report and read it. It will blow your mind. I, I've spent so much time, Roy, as you know, over the last year trying to figure out the ins and outs of the liberal connections to the Wee Brothers. This, uh, I, I was just gobsmacked at the insider access that they had, the, the details in it. I mean, just for example, the, the Kielberger brothers were so comfortable working their way through the finance minister's office while nobody on their team was registered to lobby, that they were referring to the staff in the prime minister's office as, hey, girl, hey, friend. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this up. It's, it's in the report. Wow. Did you know this before? Or did you find out when the report came out? We found most of these details out when the report came out. And I think, Roy, the issue is, and I was pressing the lobbying commissioner yesterday, so the ethics commissioner, the lobbying commissioner, 
Craig Kielberger and, and his crew never bothered to register to lobby. So we have no idea about how much extent, how, they, how many doors were open for them. What we learned from the ethics commissioner is that he, he actually hosted um, budget implementation discussions at the Wee Brothers headquarters. Um, this will be more known. Yeah, Morneau did this. And one of the parliamentary secretaries was told to attend a meeting with Craig Kielberger. And she said, why should I be there? And they said, listen, uh, Craig's been good to us. We want to keep him happy. (laughs) This was the kind of power that they had in the finance minister's office. So we know that they had contacts in the PCO. We know they had contacts with Minister Baines. We certainly know Bartish Chagger, who was very involved, uh, was speaking at their wee days. But we don't know any of those activities of what kind of things could have been going on because they aren't registered to lobby. So only because of this report did we see some really, to me, outrageous insider access that no other group or no other corporation would have had or should have had under any circumstances. Charlie, how would you describe the way the Ethics Committee's hearings have proceeded over the past year plus? How would you describe it? Uh, Roy, it's been an embarrassment to be on that committee. It is an absolute circus. Listen, I know, you know, I'm opposition, their government. I had the same thing with the Conservatives. I mean, I went up against the Dean Del Mastros and the Paul Calanders, and we fought like dogs on days. But what you do is at the end of the day, you say, okay, you're not going to get this, but we'll give you that. Uh, You negotiate so you can get the work done. What we've seen with the Liberals is a strategy I haven't seen before where they just Turn this, the circus, turn it into a circus, turn it into procedural games, shut things down, slow things down, drag things out so that no decisions can be made. And to me, that's an obstruction of the work of Parliament. We, I mean, they actually, they filibustered us for weeks, uh, you know, after the prorogation. Then when we had Parliament order the top, some of the top Liberal staffers to come to our committee. Uh, the government blocked that. And then they filibustered us, so we they didn't even want us to even record that that had happened. It's just, uh, I think it's a real low point in democracy. And it worries me, Roy, because it creates a precedent for what other governments are going to do in the future. If, if you can turn a committee, and the Ethics Committee in particular, which is an opposition-chaired committee for a reason, because it's the committee that's supposed to hold government to account. If you can turn it into a circus and muck up the works to the point where nothing gets done, then uh, you don't have that level of oversight that's yeah. required by Parliament. Yeah, no question. I thought that uh, Justin Trudeau essentially uh, self-incriminated when it came to the issue of ethics when he admitted that he should have recused himself from cabinet discussions about the uh, the program, the $900 million program, which he insisted publicly to Canadians could only be administered by we. So the moment that he said, I should have recused myself, there's an ethics, uh, well, let's call it a bypass. Yeah. That, that was certainly a point the ethics commissioner could have found him on. The other one's the interpretation of yeah. family, and the liberals just were uh, dogged on this wow. because there's two definitions of family. One is basically wife and children, and then, of course, the other is the larger obvious definition of family, which everybody knows the prime minister's mother is part of his family. Everybody knows the prime minister's yeah. brother is yeah. part of the family. And the fact that they were getting paid by we even though he may not have known that they were getting paid by you. Got to stop you, Charlie. We're just out of time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.
Thank <laughs> you.